Sarah Kumalo is climbing Everest. And we're walking on the glacier and suddenly the glacier started shaking us like leaves. Her Sherpa and the Wang looked alarmed. And Anna remember just him turning around, hooking his carabiner onto my harness and he says, Sarah, we are jumping. So the idea was, whatever was shaking us was potentially going to open a crevasse beneath us and we needed to jump to the same side. Otherwise they would fall in and get swallowed by the earth. So I'm watching Nawang's feet like a hawk. Just, if he jumps to the left, I'm jumping to the left. That was my job. Two minutes later, a huge earthquake hit with a magnitude higher than eight. And it immediately stopped and there was total silence. For an eerie second. Then... The mountains around us started avalanching because that earthquake had shaken the mountains. So we could see avalanches going on Lotse, Numse avalanching, and we are like in the middle, sandwiched really. I'm Rob Pope. I'm from Red Bull. This is How to Be Superhuman, Series 2. When Sarah Kamalo set herself the goal of climbing Everest, she didn't know what she was getting herself into yet. She wasn't even a climber. She was a businesswoman from South Africa who grew up mostly in a township in Zambia. A township is a poor, racially segregated area a sad legacy of apartheid. Girls like her weren't brought up thinking they'd end up climbing Everest. In fact, no black African woman had successfully summited that we know of before her. It took her four goes. Four goes over five years. She made it through an avalanche, an earthquake and a near-death experience in the death zone. Eventually, making it to the top of the world. Growing up one of seven sisters, the biggest mountain she climbed was more of a molehill behind the house. But she did learn some probably more useful skills to get her to the top of Everest. This was really a township, you know, where um, <laughs> survival of the fittest, you know. Um, there was a lot of bullying because people didn't know each other. There was a lot of, um, I had to actually go in and be my sister's defender almost, you know, you if you bullied my sisters, I was there to protect them, which is something that I didn't have to do. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you, you know, when I reflect on that, I actually remember that whenever there was a noise at the door in the middle of the night, they called me. And now when I reflect back, I'm thinking, what was I going to do? But somehow it's just, I was just confident. I would go in like, I'm listening, I've got this. Um, but which, which is actually probably something that... Um, 
has contributed to me thinking there's a lot that I can do, you know, um, even though um, if, if I have fear, uh, I'm courageous enough to face it, you know. I, it's, it's not that I'm never afraid, um, but I know that it, it doesn't help me to freeze. It helps me to face it because next time I'm a lot more calmer as I attempt to do whatever it is that scares me. Sarah may have been a tomboy, but she didn't do much sport as a kid. For a mum, it was all about education, education, education. Decades later, education and steely focus turned Sarah into a successful businesswoman, working in some of South Africa's leading financial institutions. And in 1996, she went on a trip to the US, which proved to be pivotal. I went to the US after having watched coming to America and dreaming about how they must be clever, you know, and all that. That's the Eddie Murphy film, and it's brill. <laughs> and I got there and these guys were like, born in Zambia, which state is that? And I realised, uh, no, they're just people like us, you know. And, and do you know my friend in Nigeria and all sorts of questions that they had, which I found quite interesting. And then somebody said to me, have you climbed Kilimanjaro? Kilimanjaro, Africa's biggest mountain, located in Tanzania. It's a dormant volcano, 5,895 metres above sea level. And when I said no, they really went to town about it. And I thought, that's an African story. I need to be able to, I should be telling you about that. And it became something on my bucket list. She didn't want some American telling her about the highest peak in Africa. She wanted to be telling them about it. Almost a decade later, in 2013, she finally decided to climb the beast. Mainly for the fun of it, but also to raise money to build a gym and a library for a children's home. Although my summit happened on Kili, something shifted when we were handing over these things because one of the kids in the home came to me and said... Do you really come from the township? And initially I thought it was a joke because we always say um, the black people swim kind of, you know, joke, like we don't swim. <laughs> and then I realized she was serious. And I just, it made me sad because I could relate to that. Because growing up, when I went to Lusaka, we had a black and white TV and had one hour of cartoons. I used to watch Wonder Woman and Superman. And I'd think they are epic, but they don't look like me. They, they fly around, nobody around me flies. So they're heroes, but I can't be. So it's almost a sense of self-disbelief. And it just made me sad. Sarah didn't see many black superheroes on TV growing up. And now, she didn't see many black explorers either. She wanted to become a superhero for young girls like her. She wanted that girl who asked if she really came from the township to say, yeah, I can do that too. I can climb Kilimanjaro. And that's really where it started. So after this conversation about, you know, people like us don't do this, I came home, reflected, and I decided that, you know, I enjoyed climbing Kili. I want to do more of that. But how can I do more of that and give an opportunity to other people that are like me to open almost their horizons through education? She decided to keep climbing bigger mountains to raise money for education. 
After all, education got her where she is today. She knew how important it was. But Sarah also had something to prove to herself. That she could be one of those superheroes she grew up watching on her TV screen. The diligent student that she was, she started researching and found out that no black African woman had successfully summited Everest. That sparked her imagination. Now, Everest is not something you just do. You have to work yourself up to it. After Kilimanjaro, Sarah was planning to go up mountains in ascending height until one day she might be able to conquer Everest. But fate had other plans for Sarah. Purely by chance, she found out that someone who worked with her was planning to ascend Everest the following year, in 2014, and he convinced her to join him. It was an offer she couldn't refuse. Then I said to him, so what's the plan? Well, we need to learn how to use crampons. <laughs> we need to learn how to, you know, climb on ice, mixed terrain. Yeah, and that's, that's when, you know, um, climbing Everest became a reality sooner rather than later. Climbing on snow and ice is a totally different ballgame from Kilimanjaro. Now, all due respect, Kilimanjaro is tough, but it's a tough trek. Everest, on the other hand, has got more altitude. It's colder. And of course, yeah, it's got the snow, the ice and the danger. You need crampons, you need ropes, ladders and guts. Sarah was totally unprepared. And so she got down to it. She started rock climbing in South Africa. Then she went to the French Alps to train in snowy conditions. There's no one babysitting you there, right? The guide that we got, we paid him much more than we paid for Kili. But the attitude was like, if you're here, you must know your story, right? <laughs> you must know what you're doing. Sarah felt way out of her depth. Half the time, he was 500 metres away and he's like, come on. He's like, what are you doing? Quickly. And it was difficult. The, the, uh, the snow was soft, so you put your leg in and the leg goes in and you need to use energy to get your leg up. And I had wrong shoes, so I was slipping. I just was quite despondent. She kept going. And despite not having the proper gear, she pulled through the trip. She'd learnt a lot, but was no means an expert. And Sarah wouldn't have time to be. Because the date of the Everest trip was fast approaching. April 2014, Sarah arrived with a climbing team and a Sherpas to Everest base camp. Nothing had prepared her for Everest. Not Kilimanjaro, not the French Alps. Now from base camp, Everest looms large. You can't see the summit, but you're surrounded by these snowy giants. And the biggest one of all is where you're headed. The sky is so clear. The stars at some point feel like they're so close, like you can almost step in and pick one of them like a fruit on, the, on a tree. The moon is so bright. You know, yes, you've got the light to show you where you're going, but it's just, it's just quiet and silent. But on Everest, 
things can change very quickly. The first night I heard all these rumbling in the night and in the morning I went into the um, dining tent and I said, oh guys, did you hear the thunder? And they said, no, 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 those are where avalanches. Small avalanches are fairly common there and it's one thing that makes it so dangerous. I was like, oh. And then they said, but don't worry, Everest Base can be strategically positioned that avalanches don't get to, to the camp. So I thought, oh, OK, now I know. Everest Base Camp is right at the bottom of a waterfall. But because it's so cold, it's a frozen waterfall. The only way to climb from Base Camp to Camp 1 is through this icefall. And every year, a team of Sherpas known as the Ice Doctors, come and prepare a route through. On the third night, still at base camp, Sarah heard a distant rumbling. That noise she heard the first night. Suddenly that rumbling was louder than I had heard it before. And I remember just getting my head out of the sleeping bag and thinking, oh, okay. Just an avalanche, we strategically positioned and I put my head back. And a few minutes later, there were walkie-talkies were just going crazy around camp and the shepherds were speaking in their language. This time, the rumbling was an avalanche. That frozen waterfall you have to climb up, it's essentially a sheet of ice. And a big chunk of that ice sheet had fallen near Everest Base Camp, where Sarah was. This block of ice that's probably as big as half my room had just hinged off the mountain and dropped onto the route. And unfortunately, there were people walking there, so it just squashed them. And we lost uh, 16 Sherpas on that day. 16 Sherpas in one go. Unfortunately, people often die trying to climb Everest. But 16 in one day. <sighs> so that, that just, yeah, that was scary. I remember going into the uh, dining tent and, and asking the experienced uh, climbers, so what do we do? They just looked as scared as I was. I realised then that um, it was a personal decision. I needed to decide why I was there and, and whether this is something that I wanted to do. Sarah went home and she wasn't sure if she was going to go back to Everest. She'd barely got started and 16 people had died. 16 Sherpas, experienced climbers. She probably shouldn't have even been there at all with their level of experience at that stage. Maybe trying was enough. But then she thought... No. Then I'll end up proving that a girl from a township can't climb Everest, can't be superhuman. And that thought really got under her skin. She resumed training. And the following year, 2015, she decided to come back to Everest and give herself a second chance. And you have one mission, one step in the next and, and going in the right direction and making sure that you're, um, you, you wrapped up 
you know, you have your, uh, your carabiner onto the safety line. Um, and, and, and it's also at some point it becomes less about the training and, and your own strength, but about the mind, you know, like, let, let me just go. It's almost robotic, you know, like, let's go, let's go. And, and, and also you're aware that whatever you're doing in front there, you're either blocking or giving way to the person behind you because there's one drop and everybody's going ahead. Despite the terrain, in peak climbing season in Everest, you're never alone. And the way you often climb is very slowly in a line, following a rope led by a Sherpa. The higher you go up in altitude, the harder it gets. At some point you start counting, I just want 20 steps, just 20, one, two, three. And after a while, you just need five, you know. But when you start getting further than Everest Base Camp and, and the, the fatigue kicks in, as I just want one step. I mean, I'm not asking for much, just, just one step. And that one step better be well placed. Because at some point, the ridge is so thin um, that any misstep, you know, you, you, can, you can fall off. This time, her second attempt. Sarah and a Sherpa made it to camp two and were climbing onwards. And we're walking on the glacier and suddenly the glacier started shaking us like leaves. Her Sherpa and the Wang looked alarmed. And I remember just him turning around, hooking his carabiner onto my harness and he says, Sarah, we are jumping. So the idea was Whatever was shaking us was potentially going to open a crevasse beneath us and we needed to jump to the same side. Otherwise they would fall in and get swallowed by the earth. So I'm watching Nawang's um, feet like a hawk. Just if he jumps to the left, I'm jumping to the left. That was my job. Two minutes later, a huge earthquake hit with a magnitude higher than eight. And it immediately stopped and there was total silence. For an eerie second. Then... The mountains around us started avalanching because that earthquake had shaken the mountains. So we could see avalanches going on Lotse, Numse avalanching, and we are like in the middle, sandwiched really. It seemed like there's no way the avalanches wouldn't eventually reach them the Sherpas started praying. Sarah thought about the avalanche the year before, where 16 Sherpas died. It was the scariest moment in my climbing life, actually in my life. Eventually, the avalanches stopped. Sarah looked around. Everyone was fine. But now, they had to make their way back to camp. And it just, it became dark. And we, we started walk, walking further back to, to Camp 2. I was cold. We were not prepared. I mean, we left our sleeping bags at, at, at Camp 1. Hours later, they made it to Camp 2. And we, the nine of us, just made um, a line and slept in a, in a dining tent that was set up at Camp 2. My first time at Camp 2, and I have never been that cold. So, Sarah came home again, feeling like somehow she'd failed. 
the naysayers in her head were starting to get to her. One of the things that I realized through this journey is, is people's almost stereotypes, you know, like, what am I doing there? Like, I don't belong. And, and that was a little bit infuriating because I wasn't given the same benefit of the doubt as a typical mountaineer in their head, you know, would have been. And, and I, I just decided that I needed to do this for not just me, for others that will come after me so that they can be given the same benefit of the doubt. She had no choice but to try again. And this time, she realised what she needed to do to be more prepared. She had to get even fitter. Not just putting in hours at the gym, but cycling and running outside so that her lungs were in better shape for that crushingly high altitude. Two years later, in 2017, with all that experience under her belt, she returned to Everest, hoping for third time lucky. I was a lot more confident in my own training, in, in what I'm doing and, and just having my own plan. All that extra training was about to come in handy. And 2017 was, uh, was the first time I ever went all the way up to um, Camp 3. And, and at Camp 3, you start sleeping with oxygen tanks and masks. It's 8,300 metres above sea level. And then she climbs higher to Camp 4. All you have in your mind is what you've seen in the movies and, um, and what you've seen on pictures and read in books. Um, and, and as you go up to Namche, you get a little bit up, there's the Everest Hotel, you suddenly see her peeping and, and she becomes more and more of a reality. But when you get to Camp 4, you can almost touch Everest. She's like just there, like it's such um, yeah, a different experience, I must say. It's the highest she'd ever been and the closest to the summit. So close she could see the damn thing. So much had gone into trying to achieve her goal, to prove that she could make it to the top. Like it's crash time. Um, you eat you sleep because you're going to wake up in the middle of the night or in the next few hours and you have your shot. And after camp four, it's death zone. And you understand that if anything happens to you there, nobody's obligated to come and, <laughs> and rescue you. The death zone. That's its actual name. Because people die there. Where oxygen is so limited that your cells start to break down. Your judgment fades and your body can react badly. Stroke, heart attack. It's not really fit for humans. You have to pass through the death zone to reach the top. No two ways about it. But it's a race against time. Because at that altitude, your body slowly starts to fail you. And you have to be very deliberate in what it is that you take with you. Nothing that is unnecessary comes with you, only the necessary stuff. And you have to choose wisely and you need to have the right gear. Um, and at 10 o'clock, um, actually it started around 8 o'clock, Nawang comes, uh, that's my Sherpa, I use the same Sherpa, and he's like, no, get ready, we're going. And so 
they set off from Camp 4 into the death zone. And we get to the south summit, which is like 99 meters from the top. He checks my oxygen tank and he changes it for me and he passes me. And I can see that he's struggling to walk as much as I am. They're at high altitude and it's also very windy. And they're almost running out of oxygen in their tanks. So they decide to go back to get more oxygen and attempt to summit the next day. But Sarah was already feeling really bad. I wasn't gaining any strength. I was just feeling weak and weak. And I said to Nawang, shouldn't I be feeling better? Because I'm just, something is wrong. And he says, no, now we can see the tents. We're almost there. Let's just go, let's go. Back through the death zone. She's already running low on oxygen and energy. And uh, before I knew it, um, very close to Camp 4, but within the death zone, I lost consciousness. Now, that's fatal. If you lose consciousness in the death zone, and I've got no more oxygen in your tank, you usually die. Her Sherpa dragged her back to camp. He put it into a makeshift tent... And crucially, he changed Sarah's oxygen tank. And I was there. I was gaining consciousness, going in and out. Um, and, and the next day, um, I think about four shepherds came with a stretcher um, to, to, to carry me. And I remember feeling somebody touching me. And I, and I woke up and I looked and I said, Lakpa, that's another shepherd that I, I had uh, become friends with. And he says, ah, oh, Sarah, you are alive. And I'm thinking, of course I'm alive, but I'm hungry because mm. I've not eaten. And, and he says to me, oh, no, I have no food, but I have water. So um, water is gold at that level. Um, took out the flask, gave me some water. And, and I, I remember just looking up at Everest and, and just with the tears in my eyes and thinking maybe that was the last time. And maybe the people that had said I couldn't do it Maybe they were right. Um, was I wrong that this was what I was meant to do? And I think that is kind of the lowest point, at least in my journey, where you start wondering whether the naysayers were right. You know, you start doubting yourself. Sarah had to be airlifted out of there. She got so close this third time, about 100 metres from the very top. But she didn't make it. Now, to give you a rocky analogy, it's not about how hard you hit, but how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. But could Sarah get up from the canvas after a third knockdown? Inside, if I were to be honest, I had kind of given up. I stopped writing letters to ask for sponsorship. I thought when everything was fine, they were not sponsoring me. Why would they sponsor me now? Um, and, and sometime in 2018, my younger son, um, he was uh, 15 at the time, came to me and said, Mom, when are you going back to Everest? Not, are you going back? When are you going back? You know. When something went wrong for her sons, like they'd lost an important football match or whatever, Sarah always scolded them for sulking. She told them to analyse what went wrong and try again. Never to give up. 
So in 2019, she went back for the fourth time. I was, I was tired. The, the first thing is the, <laughs> the shepherds tell you, come on, we're just there, and you get there, it's not there. Like, it's there, and then you, you keep going, and it's just not there. Um, my eyes were hurting, um, and, and I just, I went all the way up to the end, and I saw that the rope ends, and you fall off on the other side. Then I was like, okay, this is really the summit. They're not lying now. And I just sat down. And, and I remember just thinking about my mother always saying the sky is the limit and how wrong she was. Because there I was and the skies were beneath me, you know. It was very emotional, it was humbling. I, I also just remembered all the, what I thought were doors being closed, you know, in my face in terms of opportunities or helping me to, to make this possible and realizing that they were just closing little windows and they left the gate wide open for me to step on top of the world. And if I could do that, what more can others do? And, and I just pray that it's able, I'm able to use this experience to show others that it doesn't matter where we are, what's happening, they too can step on top of the world. And the interesting thing is, you, you, you think about all these important people, everyone in the world, they are down there somewhere, walking around, and I don't know what they're doing, but for that moment, I'm on top of the world, literally. Wow. Um, <laughs> you know, I think this is where I came up with, uh, we are all uniquely extraordinary. I think many times we stop ourselves because we are fighting to be ordinary. We're fighting to be like other people, but we can never be better than them. If we just stick to what our strength, we'll realize how extraordinary we are and made for this time, this moment. And we all have a capable of making history. And the world doesn't have to cheer us on. They may not see what we see. I mean, I came back to an airport, to a hero's welcome from people that actually told me no, from people that asked me, who's the man taking you, you know? But people like you have not done this, but they were at the airport cheering me on. Sometimes, let's be our own cheerleaders. Yeah. Because the world may seem like they are not watching us, but they are and we can convert them into our cheerleaders if we keep stepping. And everything is just a step away, a step just outside the comfort zone. She'd finally made it. The little girl from the township who'd run down the hill near her home to watch her superheroes on TV was now Wonder Woman on top of the world. Next week on How To Be Superhuman, we meet the most recent finisher of probably the hardest race on the planet, who came to England to break some records and slay a couple of dragons.
So please remember to subscribe and leave us a review. A good one, obviously, because then we'll be able to reach even more of you. And if you're feeling brave, why don't you send us in some tales of your own superhuman adventures? Like Ben Rowlinson, who the other week attempted to break the world record for the most number of burpees in 24 hours. It's not everyone's go-to exercise because they're evil, but the attempt is a success with 9,119 burpees. Unbelievable. If you want to check out what that does to a person, you can check out some of the photos on his Facebook page, Ben Does Burpees. Spoiler alert, it sucks. 